Welcome everybody to Spirituality Adventures. This is a non-judgmental place to explore spirituality, and we're so glad you're here. This is a viewer and listener supported podcast, so we greatly appreciate your support. If you're watching on YouTube, be sure and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Be sure and like, share, and subscribe to any of the social media content platforms that you're using. And then if you go to our website, spiritualityadventures.com, you can make a one-time donation or with a monthly subscription, you'll gain access to our bonus content. We greatly appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in. All right, welcome everybody to Spirituality Adventures. We're glad you joined us today. And I am so excited to introduce you to Emily Haig. Yep. Emily is the CEO of First Call, mm -hmm. which is a, organization that works with families and individuals who are dealing with substance use disorder. Yep. And so I'm so excited to have Emily here. My good friend, Tom Langhofer is the one that said, Hey, you need to interview Emily. And <laughs> some of you who follow me have, you know, it's been a few months, but I interviewed Tom um, not too long ago. And so uh, thanks so much. Absolutely. Emily, thanks for, for asking. Here. Yeah. Um, let's, let's, I always like to get background story, mm -hmm. like where you were born, where you grew up, kind of your early influences okay. with your family and yeah. all of that. I was born in Naperville, Illinois. So like the suburbs of Chicago. Um, and we lived, my mom is from Northern Minnesota, Duluth, Minnesota. My dad is from Northern England and they met at an AA meeting in downtown Chicago. And, um, about eight months later, my brother was born. So rest is history. Um, and so we lived in the Chicago is area. Is your brother older? Yes. Okay. Yeah, he's three years older than me. Okay. Um, so we lived in Chicago and then um, my parents, my mom really wanted, she's one of six kids and she's the only one that's not in Minnesota still. So um, my dad asked for a transfer and he got transferred to Kansas City instead of Minneapolis. So that wasn't really the plan, but my mom only punished him for like 15 years. Um, she was not a big fan of the move, but we moved <laughs> here when I was in first grade. Um, so this is kind of, for all intents and purposes, my hometown. Which which high school did you go to? I went to Olathe South. Oh, wow. And we just interviewed uh, Sarah Morgan, who's a country singer who went to Olathe South. Oh, what was her? I wonder what her maiden name was. I've interviewed Calvin Arsenia, who went to Olathe South, who's a musician, singer, songwriter, harp player, African-American guy. Okay, who, yeah, I don't know that person. Um, but anyway, yeah, so interesting. A lot of jewels. We might, we're going to have know, to. That's what people yeah, say about South Olathe. We're, we're farming them out. Olathe South in our <laughs> yeah, anyway. Yeah, so we moved to, and at that point, like where we moved in Olathe was kind of the end of the earth, and now it's you know, there just goes yeah. forever. I had a nephew who played basketball at Mid-American Nazarene. Yeah, so I lived like a mile from there. Okay, yeah. All-American. And so I was down there at the, watching cool. him play basketball quite uh -huh. a bit. So that was, that was my foray into that world, okay. part of town. Yeah, so, and, and like I um, was super involved in, I played soccer competitively. That was kind of the thing I did. Um, but was very involved as I in high school with student council and um, all different types of things. I kind of had a lot of different friends and 
but my senior year of high school was kind of tough. We lost um, a very dear friend in a really like tragic car accident. And my friend group, you know, I just was ready to go. So I applied for colleges that were anywhere but here. And that's when I moved to Minneapolis for school. Okay. How many brothers and sisters do you have? I've got, so it's kind of layered. Um, my parents have three kids. So I have a younger sister, me, and then a, an older brother. And the three of us are very, very good, close friends. Mm -hmm. But my dad had been married twice before this marriage. So I have mm -hmm. a half brother in California. And then I have two half siblings in England who I had never met hmm. until, um, so I was 25, I think, when I met my brother, Paul. Um, and we knew that they that he existed and we knew that was like a really painful chapter in my dad's life. But um, he connected like with one of my uncles in England on Facebook and that's how he found my wow. dad. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, kind of random and wild. So, uh, so I'm curious, because obviously this ties into your work yeah. that you're doing today, but you're so your parents met in an AA group in Chicago. They did. Dad from England, your mom's from Minnesota. <laughs> yeah. They meet in a Chicago AA group. And have they have they stayed sober all these years? They have stayed sober wow. for 40 years. Gosh. So Congra it's- Congratulations, uh, mom and dad, yeah. if you listen to this, <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, um, it's <clears throat> the biggest gift, I think, um, their recovery was very much at the center of our home for better or for worse. Like that wasn't always yeah. easy. And there were moments that were healthier than others. But at the end of the day, they never drank or you, I've never seen my parents drink or use drugs, um, which is a miracle. Yeah. And so they, so AA talk, <laughs> like AA has its kind of almost own lingo, sure do. Yeah. you know, like the big book is like, I, it's like the Bible, yeah. you know, and like the 12 and 12, it's just got this whole lingo, yep. which I, you know, as a pastor, I was, I was always supportive of people going to AA, but I didn't really know it. I think maybe one time I read the big book quickly, you know, like 20 years ago as a pastor, not mm -hmm. ever just kind of wanting to have a feel for what it was yeah, all about. That's cool. But that was it. And I, you know, I'd, I'd refer people there and I was happy people were yeah, there. Yeah, it's kind of like just this own But I just didn't know entity. really anything about it mm -hmm. until now, you know, now. Yeah, right. <laughs> My last two and a half years history. has been a, have been a place that I have, I've worked in the 12-step mm -hmm. world now for well, it's, about two and a half years. So did you grow up with that kind of language and yeah. talk around the house? Well, and I didn't even realize the extent until I started, I started working at First Call. It was my first job out of grad school. So I was young, like 24. And, um, and hearing- let's tell what, what First Call is. I, well, I mentioned at the beginning. Yeah. That, but that it's, a re, it's a ministry. It's, a, it's an organization here, yeah. nonprofit organization in yeah. Kansas City. Is it local only? Is it Kansas yeah, City we're based? Kind of, yeah, we're Kansas City. We we were an affiliate organization on the National Council on Alcoholism and Drug Dependence, which is no longer a thing. So okay. we disaffiliated with the national organization in 2008 as the agency's direct services grew. Um, but our mission is to reduce the impact of alcohol, drugs, and addiction by providing quality resources to individuals, okay. families, and the community. Awesome. 
Yeah. So we're going to come back to that. Okay. But let's circle back to, so you didn't realize how much language, yes. AA language was in the house until you started working for first call. And I would hear these little things or, and I'd be like, my mom says that, or when we were feeling overwhelmed or anxious or the, our go-to, her go-to was making a gratitude list. Just all these little things that very, like, I think were very like beneficial tools to use as a parent. I just never, I thought they were ours. <laughs> and then, you know, talking, cause, cause first call has typically many, many people who work at the agency are in recovery themselves. Um, and so, yeah, you kind of start hearing these little, like, keep it simple, stupid, all these little things. You're like, what the? <laughs> my parents say that and it, i felt a little your best uh, thinking got you here yeah and yeah no, well i felt a one little day at a time robbed like oh like wow i thought that was our little That's cool our family thing, thing. Yeah. yeah so it was it was funny i think um working where i do um it's good context because i mean we can all get frustrated or have feelings about like the family we grew up in but it helps keep me centered on, you know, there's been turmoil. Every person has had that. But at the end of the day, like um, my life has been fruitful, beautiful. And I think a lot of that is I didn't have to endure yeah. something I may have had to endure. Interesting. Yeah. So, you know, having, you know, been in the 12 step world and that worked in that now the last two and a half years, um, you know, I, I've become very familiar with the higher power approach to spirituality. Was was that a part of your family, that approach to spirituality? Mm -hmm. Was there other faith-based? Did your parents have a, a faith mm -hmm. background? Yeah. Was there? My dad was raised Roman Catholic, like altar boy, very, very involved um, in church, in the Catholic church. And my mom was raised Presbyterian. But going to church, that was part of both of their lives. And so when they got together, they landed on Lutheran. It was kind of like in the middle of what they both knew. So we were right. My brother, sister and I, we all were raised and confirmed in the Lutheran church. Um, and that was, you know, it never really felt like a chore or it was just kind of a part of our of our lives. Mm -hmm. I definitely saw my parents seek a lot of comfort and refuge in church mm -hmm. and through the leadership of the church that we went to like our pastors were you know kind of counseled them through difficult chapters mm -hmm. and, so, and i think absolutely for them their um, recovery god is at the center mm -hmm. of that yeah um and it kind of you know has manifested differently throughout the years so we, w we went to church consistently in my childhood. They don't seem to go to church consistently now, but I know that their faith in God is still, a, you know, really mm -hmm. centering force for them and a centering part of their mm -hmm. program. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah. How's that? How's that influenced you? Um, I think I get it. Um, I just it's not for me. I I think. Um, and we were kind of talking about it earl that this earlier. I do believe in kind of this cosmic karmic. Um, you kind of get what you give, and mm -hmm. that they're you know the, that law of attraction sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know. You know that could be spirituality. I I, I don't know what 
to call that, but I absolutely believe that you get what you give. Um, but for me, it hasn't really, I don't feel supported it. Like I don't go to a church to have that affirmed in my life. Mm -hmm. Um, that's affirmed for me through watching a lot of good people do beautiful things every day. It's affirmed mm -hmm. in my work and in all the relationships that I have and, um, just really focusing on goodness. And sometimes I think that that probably makes me a little bit of a Pollyanna. I'm definitely an idealistic person. Um, but yeah, so I, I think it's it's kind of taken the theme that I grew up with. I just, I don't necessarily think that you need to go to church to learn those lessons. Mm -hmm. I think that other people and the world itself can teach us if yeah. we're listening. So goodness, mm -hmm. beauty, creativity, love, mm -hmm. grace, forgiveness, gratitude, gratitude. Those are things that you really press into. Yeah. I would like yeah. to think so. I mean, that was a very yeah. beautifully eloquent synopsis. Well, I'm just, it's part of it. <laughs> that's, that's something I, I, I say like, Hey, if, even if there's not a God, this is the kind of person that right. I want to be and the kinds of things that I want to press into. Yeah. You know, and I'm not saying there's not a God. I'm just saying that even if there's not, well, <laughs> I've, right. with all the things that are in the world, I read science, I read, you know, I've been a Bible Jesus guy, but, but I read broadly and there's so much that we don't know. And there's yeah. so much mystery to me that I think even if there's not a God, I still want to be this kind of person. Yeah. And I agree. And I think and, that church for so many of us kind of gives just like AA does though, it kind of gives you a roadmap of like, this is a, this is mm -hmm. perhaps like a good way to lead your life. Like these yeah. are the key tenants that, that, you know, you want to abide by or this, you know, like showing love and respect to your neighbor. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I think, you know, I've said that to people in my life in recovery a lot, like it, you know, I trust people that are in recovery, you know, in a 12 step program or doing whatever they do to take care of their recovery. Cause, cause I know it's kind of like giving a roadmap. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think that that's a, I think that's a gift. I think there's just a lot of ways to have the roadmap. Yeah. A lot of different roadmaps. Yeah. And I think, you know, the community part of it, um, is, you know, there's something about having relationships that support you in those core values, those, yeah. those key beliefs that you hold to and having community around that, mm -hmm. you know? And, and so we, we, I, I think there's value in, in that as well. Whatever, however you find that community. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. So, and, and you see that the beautiful thing about your work is that you, you see a lot of these things in action every day, I'm sure. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so interesting. So how, um, did you have negative experiences with the church? I want I kind of, I'm just curious. Did no, um, no, I didn't personally have okay. negative experiences with okay. church. No, I, um, I went to the same church my entire life. Mm -hmm. Um, the pastor that I grew up with married my husband and I, okay. he's, they've baptized, it's a husband and wife pastor duo. Okay. They baptized both my children. I like love and respect those two yeah. people. Okay. Um, no, I think as I've grown into adulthood, my, my like pushback perhaps is more, is on a more like macro level of just, um, 
you know, that we see people who are hurting more than others. And, and I think that there are examples of times where the church should be like just acknowledging and welcoming. And I say the church like this. Mm -hmm. um, and I think sometimes religion has been used to hurt people. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that is the part that I, that makes me distance, that yeah. has led me to distance myself because I totally agree that, um, and I have many people in my life who get that like beautiful sense of community and it's opening and welcoming and inclusive. Mm -hmm. But there are lots of examples where it it's not that way. Right. Um, and that is where I really, I, I personally have a hard time because I don't want my kids to see like sanctioned exclusion. Yeah. That's, that's the antithesis yeah. of what I'd like them to be right. learning. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. The church has and throughout its history has been a, failed abysmally at living out some of Jesus's best teaching. Yeah. You know? And I mean, it's been the opposite sometimes yeah. of what Jesus is in my view. Well, sometimes and I think it's just gotten a little political. It's, it does that. It gets, it gets judgy. It gets yeah. all kinds of things. And, uh, yeah. Um, I hear you. <laughs> I understand. Yeah. Uh, how about your college experience? What, what you went, you ended up going to the university of Minnesota. Yep. And what, tell uh, us, so tell me about that. So my college experience, yeah. um, like I said, I was running away a little bit cause I just wasn't very happy in Olathe. Um, my brother had moved to Chicago and for his college. So he had been gone for a couple of years. That was hard too. Cause my sister and brother and I were kind of thick as thieves. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, I, my freshman year was brutal. Just like, I thought I was just really, really homesick. And, um, and my parents had a very hands-off parenting approach. Like I proved to have like fairly good decision-making early. And so they left me alone. But when I came home from my freshman year of college, they sat down and they said, you need to talk to a doctor, you're depressed. Mm. We're worried about you. So um, I went back my sophomore year under the agreement that I would stay another semester and they and we would see how things were going. They were worried about me. Mm. Um, so I started on antidepressants, that helped. Um, I started learning how to like breathe and manage my anxiety and acknowledge that that's something that I deal with. And I met my husband <laughs> and the rest is history. So did you meet at, at college? Yeah. At, at Our University sophomore of year okay. of college we met. Where is he from? He's from the suburbs of Minneapolis. Okay. So um, just like a, you know, redheaded Minnesota Viking kind of. <laughs> um, so, but college was, I, um, so growing up in Olathe, I did feel kind of on the outside of like, I wasn't, you know, a Nazarene or there were a lot of people who had a faith. I mean, that had a faith like journey that was different than mine. Um, I had political belief system that was different than most of my peers that I've started to really feel that my senior year of high school. So, but the other thing was in high school, I think I was very like thought that I was a popular person and I'm very, I don't want to brag, but I'm very analytic. I'm very smart. 
Um, and so I was in, you know, AP classes and I was the second in my class of like 470 people, mm -hmm. but that's not what I wanted to be in high school. But when I went to college, I realized like that's who I was. And there were all these cool people who were the same and, um, just like really found my people. Mm -hmm. Um, and that was awesome. I lived in the honors dorms with all the dorks and realized <laughs> that I fit right in. So, so funny. I went, when I went to Baylor, I remember it's like everybody I met was a valid Victorian, you know? And I was like, how in the hell are there so many valid Victorians in one place? You know? like a and class then, of 10 people. Yeah, then, I started, <laughs> then I started asking them, I said, well, how many were in your class? You know, they'd go 15. Yeah. They'd like, oh, okay. Yeah. Cause I was like, you know, I don't know, I had 500 and something in my yeah. graduating class. And my, actually my best mate, my, my uh, best man in my wedding was our valedictorian. So oh, anyway, cool. so I kind of, I kind of hung out with sporty people and the, the intellectual crowd as well. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, so Minnesota but, was, I mean, you're going to college, like in the first off university of Minnesota is the second biggest public university in the country. It's wow. huge. And so all of a sudden I had this level of anonymity that I hadn't had a high school cause I was in the mix with everything in high school. And, um, it was awesome. I just loved it. Mm -hmm. I loved, um, all the things that I got to study and, um, just kind of doing whatever I wanted. It was the first time that I really realized like, no one else is paying attention to you, mm. you, you know, just do what you want. What did you major in? Um, I double majored in political science and comparative literature. So. Oh, wow. um, was that a BA or BS? Yes. BA? Yeah, Bachelor of Arts, Arts. Yeah. yeah. And what in comparative literature in what field? So cultural studies, so okay. like, Oh, if I could go on about some like some anthropology of, kind of stuff. No, or? more like, um, you know, maybe French literature. You take a like classes of French literature, or like literature, the like reading books all about like the Quebecois people in Quebec, or just really strange classes. Honestly, like took a class all about suburbia, how that's come to be, how that shapes our society, or about how like science fiction literature has come to be and like what are, what's the canon of science fiction literature. The classes were so interesting. Wow. But it was very, it, I don't know how, what level of applicability there was. Right. Yeah, that was my filler in her. But so it does sound like, so if, even from an anthropological, anthropology angle, you would, you would read literature from various cultures. Yeah. So it was very, so you're probably getting, you weren't just getting yes. you know, the, the the top 100 books from the white western world but right. you were you were exploring all different from all cultures probably from all all kinds of time periods mm -hmm. and, and yeah fun. yeah it was it was cool like political science i i just i went into college with a ton of credits and so it afforded me the opportunity to just take a class mm -hmm. that was interesting mm -hmm. and, and so that was very much the comparative lit stuff okay. but i planned on working in politics. Mm -hmm. That was the plan. Okay. So that was the main okay. study area. Yeah. And um, I did an internship for a congressman my junior year in okay. DC. And oh, really? Yeah. And I came back and I was like, you're way too nice for that. Who did, who did, yeah. <laughs> who did you intern for? So this is like 
the the person I interned for is a guy named Jim Ramstead. He was okay. Minnesota's third district for like 20 years. And he was the champion of mental health parity. So when I was there in 2007 is when the Mental Health Parity Act passed, which was the first federal legislation saying insurance companies need to treat mental health disorders the same way that you're treating physical disorders. So that was in 2007, it's 2022. It is still not being implemented properly. Mm. Um, but I, my joke that I made with friends, cause Ram said's a Republican and I was a Democrat and I was like, but the, I believed so deeply in what he was trying to do. His co-sponsor was Patrick Kennedy, who's still a huge champion in our field. Mm -hmm. um, but Ram said was in long-term recovery and um, you know, just trying to make a positive yeah, impact. That's cool. It was cool, but it was like harsh. Once you got in there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, and then, then, then there was a huge, a huge recession. So mm -hmm. I graduated college in 2008 mm -hmm. and, um, you know, thought I would work in government or, but there were hiring freezes. And so I was planning to go to grad school and I went right away and got my master's in public policy at the university of Minnesota. Okay. So I just decided to keep on going to school. Public policy. Yeah. So, so it's kind of like applied political science. So public policy. So I study nonprofit management. Um, so it's very similar to a master's in public administration. So people that are working in the nonprofit or government sector, mm -hmm. and it's essentially like an MBA just focused on like the nonprofit sector. So more okay. specialized really. Yeah. So you're learning about, I mean, I learned about all sorts of different, you know, research and outcomes, but program evaluation and um, studied social policy. So kind of how to strengthen like the safety net. And yeah. so it's all kind of been one. I mean, when I look back, it's all been kind of like one path mm -hmm. really. Um, so most of my cop peers from school were all doing the same thing. We're leading and working in nonprofit agencies. Yeah, so cool. Yeah. I've started four nonprofits. It's Spirituality tough. Adventures is my fourth. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, the the one was uh, a church, one was um, a ministry to help support church growth, and mm -hmm. then one was a music company <laughs> okay. to support artists that were in my church. And then this one is um, about helping, you know, people grow spiritually, mm -hmm. spiritual growth and transformation. Yeah. So 501c3s is, yep. is first call 501c3. Yeah. yeah. Yep. And uh, yeah, so I know a little bit about that. Yeah. I don't uh, know much about like my mom has established a nonprofit. I. I am part of, I mean, First Call has been in the community since 1958. So I think it's probably a lot easier to step into a well-established nonprofit than do the heavy lifting at the beginning. So I commend you. Yeah. Um, so you went right from your studies in your master's mm -hmm. to First Call? Yeah. Uh, and, and then you're still at ago. First Call. Okay. Yeah. 12 years ago. All right. So how did that door open up for you? Um, my mom ran a small outpatient treatment agency in Olathe 
for substance use. Um, and so she kind of knew, like first call has done professional development for people working in the field forever. So she was a little bit aware um, and they had a job open. So, I mean, I, I kind of like lived at my parents' house for four months that summer. I went to the gym, I went to the pool. I applied for like 40 jobs. The job market was still kind of, that was 2010. Mm -hmm. Okay. So it took a little longer than I expected, but um, I applied for a very random job at first call in the prevention department um, that was like supporting tobacco retailers and not selling tobacco to minors. Um, it was essentially like a big research project, but it was the kind of step in the door. And I've done like six different jobs there since. I was wondering. Yeah. Lots what of are they? Jobs. Tell me the different jobs. Um, so I did that. That was like Casey Wyman. I couldn't even tell you what the acronym is, but the coordinator for that kind of grant funded project. And then I um, was the program coordinator for the agency's first federal grant. Um, for it, it was a technology grant. And then I moved, I was the director of quality assurance and then the vice president of development and now the president and CEO. Wow. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. How long have you been the CEO? For a year. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I worked very, very closely with Susan Whitmore, who's my predecessor. We were kind of the dynamic duo okay. for five years, six years. And she told me that she was gonna tell me before she was quit. Yeah. But she didn't. Okay. <laughs> she, um, I think COVID was just like so clarifying in so many mm. ways. And so her family's all on the East Coast and uh, she was like, I gotta go, gotta okay. move to Vermont. Wow. So, but there, we had a, like a competitive hiring process. They had like over 70 applicants and. Wow. So it was, it was tough, wow. stressful. That's cool though. Yeah. So let's let's dive into first call. So it started in 58. Yeah. Who like who started it and what what yeah. was that early what were those early days about? And yeah, it was started by a woman named Marty Mann who was very involved with the inception of Alcoholics Anonymous. And um it was started, it was called an NCA, National Council on Alcoholism. And really this express purpose was information referral for families because Alcoholics Anonymous got established for the person dealing with alcoholism, but there was nothing, then your, the families were kind of just out of the loop. Mm -hmm. And so um, that was the probably, impetus of the- Probably before Al-Anon, right? Yeah. I don't even know when Al-Anon started, but- um, Right, there, yeah. it was just AA. Yeah. So, um, and, and like that information and referral is still the absolute backbone of what we do. Um, so it's pretty cool. The organization has had a bunch of different names, kind of slowly evolved. So in the 80s, we went from being the NCA, but then we added DD, so National Council on Alcoholism and Drug Dependence. And in, and in the 80s, like that was kind of a divisive shift because there was stigma from alcoholics about people addicted to drugs. And, you know, it was like just a kind of a sign of the times. Um, and, but we've all settled, you know, everything's settled. And I think people understand that alcohol use disorder and opioid use disorder and all like the symptomology is the same. Um, so, and then I think in 2008, 
our name was too long. We were the National Council on Alcoholism and Drug Dependence of Kansas City. And so we changed our name to First Call Alcohol Drug Prevention and Recovery. <laughs> <laughs> so who knows? But mostly we usually just go by First, first Call. call right. yeah. Very cool. So um, like give us, give us some rundowns on your main programs. Mm -hmm. So I like, I like to say we have programs for individuals, families in the community. So I'll start with individuals. Mm -hmm. um, the 24 hour crisis call line, like I said, that information referral, that is still the backbone service that we mm -hmm. offer. So this be somebody in crisis mm -hmm. that calls your hotline. Yeah. Hey, I got pulled over. I need to get a, an assessment. DUI thing or, or uh, hey, I think my husband is drinking too much. I don't know what to do. Okay. You know, or hey, I need to go to treatment. I don't know where to start. Okay. So it the phone calls are wide. And a lot of times it's professionals calling from other organizations who just know they don't have the answer, but we will. Okay. Um, and, and we love that type of collaboration and partnership. So that crisis call line, and then we do standalone substance evaluations. Like I said, a lot of times those are court ordered, you know, maybe someone's having some sort of custody issue, but a lot of times those are self-referred to just someone who's ready to look at drinking or drug use that might be proving to be problematic. Is that like a one-on-one -on -one interview? Yeah. It's a pretty intensive service. It's usually probably two hours. Okay. Um, we use a lot of validated tools to kind of get a feel of mm -hmm. where someone is in terms of and looking in a really comprehensive way, not just substance use, but are, how are they, how's their health in every area of their life? Do they have a history of trauma? Um, are, are there mental health concerns? All of those things. Yep. Yeah. And then we can offer one-on-one -on -one recovery support to individuals too. So we will do that broadly in the community. We have a lot of programming targeted at um, the reentry population. So working with criminal justice involved individuals as they try and navigate mm -hmm. getting out of incarceration, maintaining their sobriety, it's really tricky. So those are individual services. And you don't do temporary shelter, do you? No, so we don't do any housing. Right. So you're, do you do drug testing if somebody enters into your? No. Okay. Just no, curious. I think well, the way we like to talk about, particularly for individuals, our services is we're, we're filling gaps. And so most of the time we're working, we're doing care coordination for that person to connect them with, you know, if they're in need of a more traditional treatment resource or housing mm -hmm. or mental health services. Right. Um, but, and so, we call those those people are recovery advocates. Mm -hmm. um, so they're really, I mean, sometimes they're working in a pretty short-term capacity with okay. someone. We can stay engaged as long as the person desires and has a need. Which which uh, rehabs do you partner with? We work oh. mostly with Jackson County. I mean, we have referral partnerships on both sides of the state oh. line. The state line is complicating. It is a complicating factor. You're, where are your offices? We're right on state line road on the Missouri side. On the Missouri side, okay. So most often, you know, we're working with the community mental health centers, Rediscover, Comprehensive, um, Truman, the lar like large, um, for, okay. for housing a, just an array of partners, 
Benilde Hall, Welcome House, Healing House, and there are lots and lots and lots of smaller housing organizations. Even Oxford, maybe, I don't know. Yeah, it just um, depends on who, situation. you know, what the person yeah. needs and what they're and what the best fit is. Mm -hmm. But so that's that's a conversation that we try, you know, all those are really person-centered recommendations. Yeah. Um, and then- do, do you guys do outpatient treatment? The only place where we engage in a, like an outpatient treatment program is for people who are involved with the Kansas City Municipal Drug Court, where we do a treatment program for those individuals. Okay. But otherwise, no. Okay. We're doing more like, um, it's really closer to like um, an aftercare or relapse prevention model. Um, we've talked about it to death, but we we feel like the you know, first call doing outpatient would be duplicative. There are a lot of high quality outpatient treatment programs, um, but finding the challenge is not, I think, the challenge is not the availability of the resources. It is knowing how to access them. Mm. And so we really focus on that piece. Mm. How do we get this person from point A to B? Mm -hmm. Because it's way, way, way more complicated than it should be. Right. Yeah, and your brain's not working that great. Yeah, so to not nav yeah. Navigate all of that. You're, you're, you're not. Your brain's typically not in the best place, right? And, and it's, <laughs> I'm talking about the person, the substance. Yes, I totally disorder. get it. Yeah. I agree. And and a lot of times, mm -hmm. you know, you, sometimes when we're talking direct with that person, oftentimes there's family members or mm -hmm. other people involved. It's a totally different conversation whether someone has insurance or if they don't, mm -hmm. majority of people that we're working with do not have insurance. So it's mm -hmm. it's a pretty complicated yeah. web and we're just trying yeah. to make it a little simpler. Yeah, so what what kind of, um, so, you, so you've got that immediate crisis thing, mm -hmm. 24 hour heart line, hotline, then you have, a, you have an evaluation process, mm -hmm. then you have sort of this advocate person who basically is a networker and helping them to know put out a like a step one two three you know it's kind of yeah networking kind of thing but and, it's someone who has training like some level of credentialing and expertise in supporting people with substance use yeah. disorder and so so you kind of give them a a lay of the land and maybe a process to go through yeah and then and that's for the person, that's for the addict themselves. Mm -hmm. What what programs do you offer for the family mm -hmm. that are, how does that work? Yeah, so I think the fam family services that we offer are probably what First Call is best known for. Um, since the 70s, we've been doing a program called How to Cope. Well, in the 70s, it was called Tough Love. Um, and that program is for adult individuals who are impacted by a loved one's substance use. So it doesn't need to be family, you know, it's make it's any type of relationship. Um, and the premise is, is just a little different than the typical model, which is that the family gets support, but only once the loved one has said, has decided to participate in some level of treatment, right? You know, like there's a family day, but what happens if that person never never seeks recovery mm -hmm. um and and frankly what we're working with families to kind of make a distinction of is you don't you can't control what that person is doing you but in the meantime 
their addiction is having a huge impact on you. Um, and so we have that how to cope program. It's it's a three week program. So it's 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 a commitment. Um, and then there's a companion program called caring for kids for children. Wow. So you're probably unpacking codependency issues yeah. and how yeah. to, you know, how to restore help. balance and boundaries, yeah. balance and boundaries and whose responsibility is what and yeah. And then kids. Wow. So yeah. talk about that a little bit. What do you like? So, so I'm, I'm assuming you're talking about children of alcoholics mm -hmm. or is that what you're most often? Yeah. I mean, or someone living in a home or, mm -hmm. um, but even children who maybe are like in the childcare welfare system now, I mean, the odds are, I think 80% of those kids have familial substance use. They have a myriad of risk factors that tell us they are at a very high risk for substance use disorder later in life. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, as we've come, well, what, what's the test that they, that they've started doing on you. Yeah, I know there's several of them, but they, that they start doing on the, the ACEs. The, the, yeah, that's what, yeah. what does that stand for? Adverse childhood events. So yeah. And then that you can almost predict yeah. things yeah. based on. Yes. Yeah, so it's kind of a, kind of a trauma. Process, right? it, yeah, it's, it's, it's looking at childhood trauma. Right. And so we can see. So in the example of those kids, like maybe they're not living in a home with with that parent, but we know that they have addiction in their genetic history, plus they've experienced all of these, we call them ACEs. Yes. That, I mean, that puts that kid at just such a high risk of yeah. so much. I had a friend I interviewed on here a year ago, probably named Michelle Kylo, mm -hmm. Dr. Kylo. She, she's worked uh, a lot in this area. She was at Children's Mercy for yeah. almost 30 years working in this. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. It's, it's been really revolutionary and helping mm -hmm. because the things like um, your parents getting divorced, that's, that's an, that's an adverse childhood. So I think what's powerful about that tool is in any, any of these things on a standalone are kind of just feel kind of like normal, but the mm -hmm. challenge is like, right. But if you have dealt with five of them, so some are kind of blaring, like, yeah, that that's gonna leave an impact, like watching a parent get high mm -hmm. or something. But but other, it's it's very interesting. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the thing about substance use prevention, which caring for kids is a, is a very indicated substance use prevention mm -hmm. program, is when you're talking to a six year old, you're not necessarily talking about drugs and alcohol, mm -hmm. but you're talking about resiliency and. Um, healthy decision-making so that in 10 years, there's a little voice mm. in that kid's brain, mm -hmm. you know? So it's it's a long game. Yeah. Yeah. So we do, um, that's our family services work. Um, the programs are free. They're being held in person, virtual. So we're doing hybrid sessions. Um, I, can tell you that there are people who take those classes. It, we just, there's so much praise and gratitude for that. Mm. Um, and oftentimes Al-Anon can maybe be a little intimidating or maybe you go to a group that doesn't feel like the right fit. And, but, but maybe after someone participates in how to cope, they have a better understanding of what's going on with them. 
the challenges that they have that they need to be vigilant about might make entry into a community support group like Al-Anon a little easier. Mm -hmm. Great. Any other program you want to share with us? Yeah. Well, we do. So the other hat we wear is we're the Prevention Resource Center through the state of Missouri for Jackson, Johnson, Lafayette and Cass counties. So um, that's a huge part of our work. Is that an education? kind of it's more of a yeah an environmental strategy um we originally those the program was built to really support communities and community coalitions as they tackled um priorities in their own communities so you know maybe there's a high schooler that dies in a drunk driving accident and you know those are always those have proven to be very galvanizing events for a community so a group of parents gets together well, wh where do we start? Then we have prevention specialists who can work with them to walk through kind of a standard, a process, like a framework. Mm -hmm. um, but we also do a lot of direct evidence-based prevention programming in schools, tons and tons and tons of it. So, so middle schools, high school, elementary, elementary, middle and wow. high school. Okay. Yeah. The earlier, the better, but usually we're starting in fourth grade. Okay. Yep. So that's an, an education angle too, too yeah. for sure, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. In the schools. Mm. Yeah. So that that's a huge. That's our direct services are really split, kind of fifty fifty prevention and recovery. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, that's 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 awesome. Do you have do you have like a, a favorite story or two that kind of like inspirational that like kind of. I, like make make your heart sing kind of a thing oh you know man. <laughs> we hear it about how to cope i mean we hear those stories i think just from a personal angle um we we recently got a lot of we did a very intense research deep dive on all the data we have for that caring for kids program so looking at eight years worth of data. And, and we know that it increases a, a participant's knowledge about the harmful impact of substance use, but the what the study showed us was that it's doing that, but it's also helping that child know that their parents' addiction isn't their fault and that um, there are positive, healthy ways to cope with their feelings and, and all these things. And so for me personally, I mean, I never saw my parents drink or use drugs, but I did grow up in the home of two alcoholics. And um, and so when I think about the things that these six to 13 year olds are learning about something that will be part of their life forever, I'm just, it makes me emotional because I wish I would have mm. had that. Mm. Um, it's taken me just growing up in therapy to understand you know, that for better, or for worse, like we all carry things with us and um, we're all shaped by, you know, the, our families and what we grew up with and in. So I think um, the program is a gift and would and it. It's special for me from that personal angle. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, how do people uh, reach out to first call how do they connect um you know if if we got listeners out there maybe some might want to volunteer or what yeah. you know what tell us how do people connect if they want to great so more about you. i mean first and foremost our phone number is 
816-361-5900 and that's the crisis call line so say it again 816-361-5900 and between um you're gonna get a human voice on the other side and um you know i guarantee that if someone calls they're gonna feel a little bit better even if we don't have the answer um we can offer support and understanding um our website is has, always has a ton of good information on it firstcallkc.org and um yeah we, you know we just i think the biggest thing that we have to work on and we prioritize as an agency but any behavioral health organization is um just talking proudly and raising awareness for the work we do because this isn't someone else's problem. This is every family, every company, every neighborhood has members that are dealing with substance use disorder. We have over 100,000 people dying from drug overdose a year. And um, the only way out of this is to make it okay, mm. to ask for help, to talk about it, and to to reach out, so. Yeah. I, I think they're just starting to compile some of the statistics from COVID, mm -hmm. you know, at least two years or whatever it is. And um, I think that the death uh, percentage on people dying from substance use stuff, that two year period mm -hmm. is really did skyrocket. 30% in a is year. Is that what it was? 30% yeah. increase in a year. Yeah. Um, and, Which is and a the, dramatic it's, uptick. Yeah. yeah. And we're, we see this, we had a staff member in our meeting this morning talking about the time we're hearing about these overdose deaths often is we have a family who's participated in how to cope. And then we're hearing about them at some point afterwards that that loved one died from overdose. Um, and it, it's also a tricky thing because the most of the time it is people who are dealing with a chronic substance use disorder that are dying from a drug overdose but mm -hmm. anymore it's not just one thing it's also a kid trying an oxy pill at a party once and it's laced with fentanyl and they die um, and so i think that our message needs to be inclusive um, our response needs to be really proactive in making sure our communities have the tools like overdose reversal drugs. Mm. Um, also just talking about the fact that using drugs is more dangerous than ever. Because mm. um, I think 60, 70% of those overdose deaths deal with fentanyl and it's just so, so lethal. That's what I've heard. Um, yeah, and I, I, I mean, I don't know how long that's been going on it seems like maybe five, maybe not that, maybe five, I would 10, say years, five in, 10 years. Yeah, it, it kind of started, it's been slowly creeping in, particularly with heroin. I think maybe the change we've seen in the past two years is now fentanyl is getting mixed with all illicit drugs. Mm. So if you use meth, cocaine, you're not immune. Like, mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, there you can buy and first call is purchasing fentanyl test strips that someone can test their drug supply before they use to make sure it's not laced mm -hmm. with fentanyl. The approaches that we have to take from a public health perspective are, you know, way different yeah. to try and deal with this. Right. Yeah. Wow. 
and I think mm. every community seems like that is the story. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really tough. It's a really tough message because ideally someone's not using drugs. Mm-hmm. But the reality is there is experimentation and recreational use. And so I think it's a tough message as a community to send is like, if you're going to do drugs, um, make sure they're safe. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's where we are because we also know that if we can deploy some of these harm reduction strategies for people who use drugs, they're four times more likely to seek treatment and recovery in the future. And so, but they can't seek out recovery if they're dead, you know? So um, that's definitely something that First Call's working on being more proactive in. Yeah, yeah. Wow, so great work that you've committed to. Obviously, it's become very important to me, and yeah. uh, it's you know I, I'll, you know, God willing, I'll be working in the recovery world at least a part of what I do mm-hmm. for the rest of my life, and have grown to love that world and care deeply for it. Yeah. So thank you for what you're doing. In, and I love Kansas City. Yeah. So I love yeah. I love the recovery world and I love Kansas City. And so I have a very deep heart for what you're doing. And um, thank you so much for coming on our podcast and yeah. sharing some of your work. Thank you for having me and giving me the opportunity to talk your ear off. It's great. Yeah. I really enjoyed it. And yeah, if there's any way that we can, that I can partner with you guys, help in any way, or um, you know, let me know. Absolutely, I've, I've been sharing my story um, at different settings, okay. and different places, and stuff. I've shared it at Core Recovery and Art, you know, Artists yep. Helping Homeless, and all, you know, Welcome House. I've been, you know, so I, I, I still work in that area myself. Okay, so great. Yeah, well, great. Great stuff. Thank you so much, Emily, for joining us at uh, Spirituality Adventures. Emily Haig, CEO of First Call. Thank (laughs) you so much. Everybody, thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time. This concludes today's episode. Thanks for tuning in and listening. Remember, if you're watching on YouTube, subscribe to my YouTube channel. Remember to like, share, or subscribe to the social media platform that you're using, and then Go to our website, spiritualityadventures.com and make a one-time donation or you can subscribe monthly and receive our special bonus content. Thanks so much.